chapter 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses. We're going to focus on the uh, verses 9, 10, and 11. We're going to read the first 11. Philippians chapter 1 today. This is the fourth sermon in our series on prayer entitled The Priority of Prayer, looking at Paul's prayers in the New Testament, hoping that we're able to glean something, learn something from those. Philippians 1, listen to the word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. (coughs) Excuse me. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent <coughs> so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God let's pray Heavenly Father, once again, we've come to sit under the teaching of your life-giving word. So we ask that you would enable us to come with interest, with attentiveness, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Grant us the knowledge and discernment that we find here in Scripture. Give us the wisdom and the ability to put it into practice as part of our daily lives. Do that desperately needed work in each of us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lillian Guild wrote an article many years ago, about 20 years ago, which I found. I have lots of files with old articles, and occasionally I look at them. And she tells a story of when her and her husband were out driving one day, And uh, they happened to notice a late model Cadillac parked by the side of the road with its hood up. And the driver appeared uh, somewhat perplexed and agitated. And uh, so they pulled over to see if they could offer this man some assistance. And the uh, stranded driver very hastily and somewhat sheepishly explained uh, that he known when he left home that he was low on fuel. Uh, But he'd been such a hurry to get to an important meeting that he hadn't stopped at the gas station, taken time to fill up. And he ran out of gas. And so his Cadillac simply needed nothing more than refueling. And the guilds just happened to have a 
a gas can in their car and uh, the spare gallon of gas with them. And so they gave it to this man, emptied it into the Cadillac, told the driver that a few miles down the road there's a gas station. And uh, thanking them very profusely, he uh, sped off. Twelve miles later, they're driving down the road, same car, side of the road, hood up, same driver, no less perplexed than before, more agitated, and uh, again, pathetically grateful when they pulled over. And he was in such a hurry to get to his meeting that he decided to skip stopping at the gas station and drove right past it and uh, ran out of gas again. And you hear that story and you think, how could anyone be so stupid? Until you remember, it's exactly how a lot of us go about the business of living life. We're so busy pressing on to the next item on the agenda that we choose not to stop for fuel, for rest, for food, for anything. And sadly, I think Christians can be among the worst offenders sometimes. One of the biggest things we choose not to stop for is prayer. And so if we're going to make any headway in reforming our personal prayer or our corporate uh, praying... We have to begin by listening to Scripture, seeking God's help and understanding how to apply that Scripture to our life, to our church. Simply put, we need to stop. Hopefully before we run out of gas. And the aim on this series of prayers is simply to work through several of Paul's prayers in such a way that we hear God speak to us today find direction to improve our praying, both for God's glory and our own good. But I want to do something a little different today. I want to look at some of the reasons we don't pray. So we're going to start, and uh, we're going to stop and think about some of the most common excuses we give to justify our relative prayerlessness. And we'll see what the Bible has to say about these excuses. I've listed six of them in your outline. Hopefully they're all blanks. And uh, so you'll have to listen in order to fill in what they are. Uh, I think I've used all of these excuses at one time or another, and uh, probably not always consciously, because these are the kind of excuses that just seem to fall out of our mouths, usually without thinking about it. And the result is we seldom take time to read, to think, to meditate, to wonder, to analyze. We seldom take time to pray. The first one is probably the most common. Simply put, I'm too busy. (coughs) Mm. I'm too busy. Probably one of our most overworked excuses After all, we do live in northern Virginia. It's a frenetic age. Both in our work and our play, we rush. (coughs) We perform, we accomplish, we strive, we do. 
and we don't stop. We're just not living in a contemplative age. And when we do stop rushing and performing and doing, many of us park ourselves in front of the television, possibly one attached to a video recorder, and we simply absorb what's dished out. And it's because we're tired. And it's the rare person who has to think when watching television. We watch television often because we don't want to think. I'm just as guilty of this as you are. And it matters little whether you're the mother of active kids who drain your energy, an executive in a major corporation, a college student cramming for exams, a plumber working overtime to put your kids through college, or even the pastor of a busy church. If at the end of the day you've been too busy to pray, you are too busy. Time to cut something out. Second excuse is probably the second most common excuse. And simply put, we say, I'm too dry. Some of us may set aside time to pray, only to find when the time comes we feel too discouraged, too unbelieving, too empty, in short, spiritually too dry to pray. We may be tempted to put off praying until we feel like it a little bit more. And whether or not we've given in to our feelings, sometimes all of us have felt this way. <coughs> now what triggers discouragement or what I'm calling spiritual dryness could be a hundred different things. Could be short of sleep. And when you're tired, you Start seeing the world pessimistically. Someone may have hurt your feelings. They may have made your spirit sag by venting uh, unrestrained or careless criticism. Stress can be taken its emotional toll. In such cases, the second excuse of being too dry is usually tied to the first excuse of being too busy. Whatever the cause, the challenge to pray seems too big to surmount when we're spiritually exhausted. And hidden behind this excuse are two presuppositions that are really quite horrible once you think about it. The first one is that the acceptability of my prayers to God is tied to how I feel. Because obviously God is especially impressed with us when we feel joyful or carefree or well-rested or pious. And surely God doesn't want to hear from us when we're tired or exhausted or spiritually dry. We don't put it in those terms, but that's what we're saying. God's only interested in what we have to say when things are going well. And that's baloney. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible. The basis of any Christian's approach to God is the sufficiency of Christ's work on our behalf. I mean, don't we usually pray in Jesus' name? (coughs) It's doing better. 
I mean, if we think the acceptability of our prayers turns on whether we feel full or dry, happy or sad, it's ultimately casting a terrible slur on the cross. If we think the acceptability of our prayers depends on how I feel. Now, it's true that it is harder to pray when I'm discouraged or empty. I have to remind myself more often and more strongly that the sole reason God accepts me is the grace that he's given me in the person and work of his son. But surely it's better than giving the impression that somehow we're more fit to pray when we feel good. So our feelings ultimately should have nothing to do with it. The second unacceptable uh, presupposition behind this attitude is that my obligation to pray is diminished when I don't feel like it. That somehow all those commands about praying just don't apply when I don't feel good. You won't find that in the Bible either. Because that assigns to my feelings the right to determine what I do. And ultimately, that's very self-centered. It means that I and I alone determine what is my obligation, what is my duty. And in basic form, it's everyday idolatry. It's I get to be my own God. It's as if the Bible never says, Romans 12, 2, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. There's no fourth phrase that says, when you feel like it. God insists we don't have to hide behind our feelings of spiritual dryness, behind chronic unbelief, behind our lapses into discouragement. He wants us to learn to trust him and persevere in prayer, especially when we don't feel like it. So that's the second excuse. Third excuse is a little bit trickier than the first two, and that's I'm too confident. Few of us are so crass uh, that we would say that out loud. Or even that we would consciously reason, I'm too important to pray. I'm too self-confident to pray. I'm too independent to pray. Instead, what happens, it, it sort of works like this. I affirm the importance of prayer, but the reality is I treat prayer as important only in the lives of other people. You really need prayer because your life is really screwed up. I'm fine, thanks. Um, And especially if I judge those people are having some hard time Uh, There may be sickness. There may be a character issue. They may be needy or less competent or less productive. They may be too busy or too dry. And so prayer is really important for them. And while affirming the importance of prayer, I don't feel any great need for prayer in my own life. I'm getting along, you know, pretty well without doing a whole lot of praying and My confidence is constantly being reinforced that I can handle it. I'll call you God if something really big happens. And it breeds just another round of prayerlessness. 
And if Christians live with such self-assurance that they don't learn by listening to the scriptures, God will address them in the language of tragedy. That's a pretty hard thing to say. We serve a God who delights to disclose himself to those who are uh, contrite and repentant and lowly of heart and meek. And when God finds us so puffed up that we don't feel any need for him, it is an act of kindness on his part to take us down a peg or two to show us our need for him. And if he were to leave us in our uh, exalted self-esteem, that would actually be an act of judgment. There's a great biblical example of this in the book of Joshua, the Gibeonite deception. I don't know if you remember it or not. It takes place in Joshua chapter 9. At this point, God's done a lot of great things for the people of Israel. They've crossed the Jordan. They've entered the promised land. The walls of Jericho have fallen. By God's power, they have overpowered Ai, one of the tribes against them. And so by the time you get to Joshua 9, you have this odd story. The people of Gibeon approach. And they put on dilapidated sandals and old clothes and they're carrying moldy bread to generate this illusion that they've traveled a long way and that they're sort of poor and desperate. And they pretend they're not part of the corrupt tribes of the land that the Israelites have been ordered to drive out. They're just foreigners who want to secure a peace treaty with Israel because, of course, they recognize that Israel is a rising power And what is Israel's response? Joshua 9, verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And they fell for it. They said, ah, these people are no threat. We'll make a covenant with them and they'll be fine. And they deceived the Israelites. And they didn't know about it because they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And it's a damning indictment in here. And yet you could paraphrase that text. You could apply it to most of us. John weighed the employment opportunities before him, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Jane sought a lot of advice before she made her decision, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Potomac Hills formed a committee to explore reaching out to Loudoun County, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. (coughs) It is painfully easy for us to come to all sorts of critical points in ministry and service in our family, career changes, and precisely because we've done well in the past, we approach this matter with all sorts of criteria and rationale, but without prayer. And as a result, we repeatedly stumble and fall because we've 
although we've exercised our intellectual uh, creativity and our cleverness, we haven't sought God's face. We haven't begged God for his wisdom. And we won't admit it, but we're too self-confident, and so we don't pray. Fourth, this one's hard to admit as well, but it's not uncommon, and that's we're too bitter. We're too bitter. Can't live very long in the world without coming across injustice and a chronic lack of fairness. Just ask your children. And many of us can accept such sin with sin with uh, calmness, reasoning after all we live in a fallen world. But when that injustice or unfairness is directed towards us, when it's against us, then our reactions tend to be a lot less philosophical. And we may find ourselves nurturing a spirit of revenge or bitterness. And those sins assure that our prayers become at best, formulaic. Just kind of go through the motions. And eventually it will lead to chronic prayerlessness. How can I be expected to pray when I've suffered so much? Don't talk to me about praying for my enemies. I know who's kept me from getting promoted. And life gets consumed by these petty assessments of how you're perceived by those around you. And it becomes a quagmire of self-pity and resentment. And prayer gets squeezed out. And a lot of us in that point don't want to pray. Because we know that discipline, biblical prayer, would force us to eliminate this sin that we've come to cherish. Bitterness gets a hold of us. And once it gets a hold of you, you don't want to let it go. It's very hard to pray for somebody you would rather resent. We get too bitter. Fifth, we get too ashamed. We all sin, and we all think our sin is worse than everyone else's. And we all agree that we're all sinners. But deep down, we know that we're worse than you. And if you knew just how sinful we were, you wouldn't hang out with us anymore. And we wouldn't hang out with you because we'd be too ashamed. Remember the response of Adam and Eve after their willful disobedience to God's one prohibition. Genesis 3. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Shame encourages us to hide from the presence of God. Shame hides behind this masking foliage of pleasantries rather than being honest. When you're ashamed, you walk into church and people say, hey, how you doing? Fine, thanks, and you? Rather than saying, this week has been terrible. Really need you to pray for me. Shame produces flight and escape and prayerlessness. How did God respond to Adam and Eve? He dealt with their sin. You can't successfully hide from God anyway. Proverbs 5. 
A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. <coughs> I'm sorry. Just it's getting to be hard. Hebrews 4 says, No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's futile to run from God. Our sense of shame can't be an adequate excuse for prayerlessness. Our shame, in fact, ought to drive us back to the only one who can forgive us. Back to the freedom of knowing that we've been accepted by a holy God because of his grace. Not because we deserve it. We obviously know we don't deserve it. So that's the fifth one. Shame. And last, and this one we would never admit to. But it may be most common of all. And that is simply that we are too content. We are too content. There's Christians who want enough of uh, Christ to be identified with him, but not enough of Christ to be seriously inconvenienced. Genuinely cling to basic uh, Christian truths, but don't want to engage in serious Bible study. Value moral virtue, especially in public, but don't engage in war against your own sinfulness. Fret over the quality of the preacher's sermon, but don't worry about the quality of your own prayer life. There are tons of Christians, particularly in this country, who are content with spiritual mediocrity. And sadly, far too often, such Christians are us. And that's what Paul's writing about here. He loves this church. This is, many people think, that the church in Philippi is his favorite church. He uses the word joy more than any other of his books. But there's problems here. They've come up with all kinds of excuses. But it still looks good on the outside. They're still coming to church on Sunday morning. And so beneath all the nice things that Paul is going to say to them, there's some zingers that come in here, sort of, I know what's really going on. You know, we, we talked about peace this morning in the high school, uh, Sunday school class, and we tried to sort of define it. And uh, what does it mean? What does it look like? And... Uh, I said, uh, when we get into worship service in a little while, what percentage of the people there do you think will really be at peace? I think we uh, settled on about 25%. One of the best answers was nobody over 10. (laughs) So even though things look good, God knows what's going on underneath the surface. First thing we see Paul prays for, and we're going to focus on three verses, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. But Paul prays for three things, and I think these things will go a long way toward overcoming uh, these hurdles, getting us to pray when it's hard. The first thing, we see two things here, verses 9 and 10. Paul prays for, he wants us to pray for discernment and excellence. Discernment and excellence. 
At one level, you could say Paul's asking for increasing love. This is the fourth prayer of Paul we've looked for. That's been in every one of those prayers. I pray that your love would increase. That's been a common theme. Obviously, the people uh, throughout the Christian world weren't mastering that loving one another. Now, I think that's still true. And he says, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, last couple weeks we've talked about knowledge, so I'm going to focus on discernment today. But it becomes clear as you read on, at least in this prayer, the love for which Paul prays is not an end in itself, but it's a means to an end. Because he tells the Philippians, he prays their love may increase so that you may approve what is excellent. And although he's praying that their love would increase, it's tied to a different end, that they may discern and approve what is excellent. So I think it's fair to say that Paul's praying for what is excellent. And what's immediately clear is Paul's prayer spells the death of mediocrity. If he's praying for discernment and excellence, it's the death of our self-satisfaction. It's the death of our contentment with our own excuses. Paul prays for what is excellent. Apparently, he doesn't expect excellence to just get dropped on us, some kind of Christmas present. So what are the excellent things that Paul prays for? There's, There's a couple of clues in the text to help us answer that question. First, he assumes... That if the Philippians are going to discern and approve what's excellent, their love will have to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's why he prays for such love. This excellence that he wants the Philippians to pursue is not easily discerned. In order to discern and approve what's excellent, you have to be characterized by this abounding love. And he says this love should abound more and more. But then he ties it to knowledge and discernment. Perhaps we would get Paul's uh, emphasis quickly if we use the opposite words. Paul does not pray that their love might abound more and more in ignorance and insensitivity. He prays their love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. He wants them, their love, to be discriminating. It's to be constrained by knowledge and discernment. Without those constraints, it can very easily de- degenerate into sentimentality. So it needs to be accompanied by knowledge, a mature grasp of the gospel, of God's word. It also needs to be accompanied by discernment. And the all here, he says, all discernment, it doesn't mean like total 100% complete uh, insight. It doesn't, I think, mean depth of insight as the NIV has it. I think it's talking about breadth of insight. The understanding and the ability to apply biblical knowledge across the entire gamut of life's experiences. There's nothing that happens in your life that somehow the Bible doesn't speak to. And that's how he wants discernment to be applied. And clearly, knowledge and discernment without love can just become overbearing and obnoxious. But love without knowledge and discernment can become very quickly a parody of itself. And the love for which Paul prays is regulated 
by the knowledge of the gospel and comprehensive moral insight. And they don't stifle love, they ensure its value. And such love, Paul says, must abound more and more. He simply assumes that unless your love is abounding more and more, you will not be able to discern and approve what is excellent. (coughs) Unless your love is abounding more and more, you will not be able to discern and approve what is excellent. It's very unique where Paul ties love to knowing what's excellent. And if you don't love, you will not know what's excellent. We don't see that often in the Bible. But he makes it very plain. So those are the first two things he prays for, discernment and excellence. He also prays for knowledge. There's actually three things, but I did a whole sermon about that a few weeks ago, so you'll just have to go to the website and listen to it again. But another thing he prays for here is he wants us to pray for the long term. For the long term. He says, verse 10, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, you could think that uh, approving what is excellent is just an intellectual exercise. But that path gets cut off by Paul's insistence that the goal of the exercise is to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. (coughs) That seems to describe conduct, our thoughts, our words, our actions that God would judge to be right. Even so, this basket of righteous qualities, this fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. It's a picture of an organism that produces fruit. And the one who makes the growth and the faithfulness possible is Jesus. We're to pour our energy into the task, but we understand where the fruit appears, it's the product of spiritual growth made possible by Jesus. Just as in Galatians 5, we read about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I'm not sure those are all in the right order, but I think I got love, joy, peace down. So here, every righteous thing that the Philippians say, every righteous thing they think, every righteous thing they do, is the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Paul's not pushing us just to try harder. He's saying that righteous living is a product of the grace of God. In the middle of all this, he adds something unique. He adds a uh, phrase that's crucial. He says, for the day of Christ. He doesn't say, so you'll be pure and blameless tomorrow. That you'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Well, what does that mean? The expression in the original means with a view to the day of Christ. It's this 
putting this whole line of thought together, Paul is praying that the love of these Christians would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that they might be able to approve what is truly excellent. And all of this so they can be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness with a view to the day of Christ. We have returned to this forward-looking dimension so characteristic of Paul. A few verses earlier, he had that same concern to keep the day of Christ in view. He said, Philippians 1, 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. First verse in the Bible I ever memorized. First Bible I was ever given, that was written on the front. It's the first verse I ever learned. And it's the theme of Paul. Now, he doesn't appeal to this day of Christ as a uh, veiled threat. He's not saying, you know, you really must start showing more signs of this righteous conduct I've been talking about, or you're going to get caught short at the end. And you could face horrible judgment or at least have a great deal of explaining to do. What he's saying is much more compelling. He's telling them to live with a view to the day of Christ. Live in such a way that you show that you remember you're, you're moving towards that day. Live in such a way that demonstrates you're looking forward to it. Have a long-term eternal perspective. Second Peter 3.13 reminds us, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And even now, Paul says, Christians will live with that day in view and they'll produce a righteousness in their lives in anticipation of that day. It's part of his call towards excellence. Yes, we're still contaminated by failures and sin and relapses and rebellion and self-centeredness. We're not yet what we ought to be, but by the grace of God, we're not what we were. And as long as we're here, we're to struggle against sin and anticipate as much as we're able to what it will be like to live in the unblemished harmony of perfect righteousness. That day of Christ. We're to live with a view to that day of Christ. This is a major theme of Paul, and it's something that we have forgotten as a church, as the whole church in not just our country, but the whole West. If you want to go talk to people about, you know, who are looking forward to when Jesus comes back and what that day will be like and how we should live in anticipation of that day, you need to go to Africa or Asia or Latin America. Because people here don't think like that. We're too content. And what it means is we're supposed to be some kind of intrinsic missionary community. Our citizenship's in heaven, but until that day, we live down here. We're to be a missionary outpost in a lost and dying world. We're to see ourselves as an outpost to the new heavens and the new earth. And our Sunday morning worship is to be just a small taste of what worship will be like on that day. So even when we come to worship, we should be doing it, looking forward to that day. It will be like this, but so much better. 
We'll all sing in tune. But I think what Paul prays this, what he's really praying for, to summarize it in one word, is revival. He's praying that we might be right now what we ought to be and what we will certainly be one day. That we should test out and approve the highest and best and holiest things with a view to the day of Christ. And Paul's saying, Christians are to be holy as forgiven sinners can be, this side of eternity. And you should pray to that end. And it's in this way that Paul's prayer for what is excellence is tied to the long-term view, to the day of Jesus Christ. And the main point here is although Paul's prayer for what is excellent is the equivalent of praying for a revival, what he's doing is praying. He's not just encouraging people to be better. He's not trying to organize revival or schedule it. And he's still not rebuking us for a lack of revival. What he's doing is praying for revival. And if a true revival is a work of God, if transforming and discerning love that enables believers to approve what is excellent is at its core the fruit of God's work in our lives. If true righteousness is fruit that comes through Jesus Christ, however much God may use means, the means themselves do not guarantee anything. Only God can produce transformation. Only God can bring revival. And it's critical that we ask God to work in us. It's vital that we learn to pray this prayer with Paul. And it doesn't matter where you stand on a spectrum of spiritual maturity. We all could do better than we do. Many of us could do a lot better. One of the most important steps we can take is to recognize where we are. If you're too busy, you need to confess that. If you're dangerously dry, you need to confess that. If you're bitter or ashamed, you need to confess that. And if you're confident or, or if you're too content, you definitely need to confess that. Our knowledge of God is slight. And we long to pray with a greater sense of reality, a greater degree of fruitfulness. We need to learn how to pray. And few of Paul's prayers have greater potential to help us surmount these hurdles, these obstacles of spiritual dryness and a lack of faith than this one. It can help us overcome all of our excuses for prayerlessness. Let me give you some practical examples and we'll close out. What do you do with your time? How many hours a week do you spend with people as opposed to things? Paul prays you'll spend time on what is excellent. What have you read in the last 12 months? Have you found time for newspaper, magazines, a novel or two? Have you found time for a good Christian book that will help you better understand the Bible or improve your spiritual disciplines or broaden your horizons? Paul prays that you'll spend time reading what is excellent. How are your relationships in your family? Do you stop now and then and think about what you can do to strengthen ties at home? Paul prays that you'll think about doing what is excellent. 
How do you decide what to do with your money? Do you give a set percentage, say 10% of your income to the Lord's work, and you give it rather begrudgingly? You regard the rest as your own? Or are you delighted when, you can ab- when you're able to put more money into ministry simply because you love to invest in eternity? Paul prays you'll spend your money on what is excellent. And sometimes our love needs the guidance of knowledge and discernment or else we wind up uh, loving things that we ought not to love. We enter into relationships that aren't good for us. And while love is supreme, it's never enough. Not every relationship is a good relationship. Not every choice is a good choice. Not every friendship is good for us. Not every job is a wise career move. Not every roommate is a healthy choice. Not every purchase is a wise use of our money. We make our choices, and then our choices turn around and make us. Like a massive ship is guided by a small rudder, our lives turn on small decisions and unexpected events. An unplanned phone call, a chance conversation in the hallway, a friend we happened to meet in a restaurant, A fragment of a remembered dream, a book we meant to return but didn't, the dry cleaning we forgot to pick up, the newspaper story that led to an idea that became a thesis that earned a degree that opened a door to a job in another state. It happens all the time. Every day we make thousands of decisions, most of them either by habit or on the spur of the moment. Will I get up in the morning? Will I take a shower? Will I eat breakfast? Will I go to work today? If so, will I take the car or will I ride the bus? If I take the car, will I listen to the radio or to a CD? If I ride the bus, what will I read while I'm on the bus? Who will I greet first at work? Who will I see before first period starts at school? Who will I meet for lunch? What will we talk about? What will I do when I get home? What emails will I answer? What internet sites will I visit? What books will I read? How will I respond to my husband, wife, friend, roommate? How much time will I spend with my kids? On and on those questions go. Thousands of questions, one after the other, little decisions made on the fly every day. And we like to think those decisions don't matter, but they do. Each decision is connected to every other decision like so many links in a chain. And there is a profound sense, a very profound sense, that you're nothing but the sum total of all the choices you've ever made stretching all the way back to childhood. And each little decision joins you to the past and leads into the future. And each decision either leads you towards God or away from God. In the final analysis, there really are no neutral choices. Because many things that don't seem to matter today may be of enormous consequence tomorrow. And so we need knowledge and discernment. We need that breadth of insight from God to make wise choices. It's good to remember the concept of insight. You could say it's sight on the inside. Kind of inner vision that allows us to properly evaluate the choices we face every day. And when we have it, we make good decisions. And when we don't have it, we end up making the same dumb mistakes over and over and over again. And behind your answers to all those questions are choices. 
Now, the last thing I want to do is generate a whole lot of guilt because of all the constant choices before us, choices at which we often fail to choose wisely or to choose what is excellent. Feelings of guilt aren't going to make us uh, make the right choices. They just increase our stress and resentment. But if our love abounds more and more, and it's shaped by knowledge and discernment, then these are the kind of choices we will want to make and will want to make them well. They're the kind of choices then that would spring from a heart transformed by God's grace. 